my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Wilson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro-Cloverfield, pro-John Lithgow podcast, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week, we have stayed within the Cloverfield franchise. We have, of course, watched 10 Cloverfield Lane. We'll talk about that soon later in the deep dive, but before we get to that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. As as I mentioned a week or two ago, we, we actually have a bit of a bottleneck going on at the moment in terms of the movies we want to do episodes on, so I've actually only got a few things to talk about this week. It's It's sort of going to be slim pickings over the next few weeks while we clean up some of those episodes that uh, we wanted to do on. So I've only actually got three to talk about this week, and one of them is, of course, The Cloverfield Paradox. It is a science fiction thriller directed by Julius Ona. It is set in the future when the world is in the grip of an energy crisis and there is a space station, the Cloverfield Space Station, and they're doing an experiment to try and get new and unlimited energy, basically, and they, they try and do this thing, fire this laser or whatever it is, and the Earth disappears. Well, that's not great. No. Look, this is better than its reputation, but not by much. It's the worst in the series by far. It's all idea, no execution. It's really quite scattered and it's poorly ordered. There are a few decent moments of weirdness, but it's it's not nearly as mysterious as it seems to think it is. It's actually fairly obvious from the beginning, especially if you're a fan of science fiction. It's actually fairly obvious what's going on. And, and the attempts at character conflicts between the crew of this space station are incredibly shallow. They are the most, like, surface-level clashes of personality, clashes of motive that you can possibly imagine. There's no depth to it. That's a problem because you've got a good cast here that ends up being kind of stranded. I mean, you've got Gugu Mbatha-Raw, David Oyelowo, Daniel Bruhl, Chris O'Dowd, Elizabeth Debicki just seems bored. The, the visuals are decent. I mean, this is the most expensive Cloverfield movie by a factor of $25 million. And I mean, that money's on the screen, but it just can't sell the idea. It can't generate that sense of mystery and intrigue that the first two Cloverfield movies do. I like the idea of an anthology, um, like of a Cloverfield anthology of each movie sort of taking on the spirit of Cloverfield, but a different form. I like that idea, but they fumbled it totally here. They add in a fairly explicit connection to, I don't know about the second movie, but at the very least the first. And it's so strained, really, really stretching and reaching to stitch together some sort of franchise here. And, and it just, in doing so, not only makes this movie feel sort of pointless, like it's like it's all been in service of some giant corporate exercise, but takes away some of the mystique and intrigue of that first movie as well. I know Jean hasn't, hasn't seen it, but have no. you, Harley? No, I've seen bits and pieces, and I just... In comparison, at least, I found it quite unimpressive. Yeah, look, unless they actually do something in that proper Cloverfield sequel that connects to this, I think you'd probably be better off ignoring this movie. <laughs> the way that it tries to pull the franchise together hurts it, I think. It's it's a kind of a dull explanation for how this is all one continuity or one universe or whatever you want to call it. I would say then only, only approach this unless future installments make it make it so you really have to but it is compelling enough as you're watching it to entertain there's just very little staying power it's available for streaming on netflix if anyone's interested because of course that was the gimmick wasn't it that they they put up the trailer for the, the super bowl and it was 
on Netflix the second the game was over. Like, it was announced as a Cloverfield movie, and then it was out, like, two hours later. Yeah. Because Paramount took a look at it and was like, oh, shit, quick, we can't put this in theaters. Someone buy it. Mm. I next watched 21. It is a drama film directed by Robert Luketic, and it is inspired by the non-fiction book Bringing Down the House, the inside story of six MIT students who took Vegas for millions by Ben Mesrick. It follows an MIT student named Ben, who's played by Jim Sturgis. He is recruited by his mathematics professor, Mickey, played by Kevin Spacey, to be on a card-counting blackjack team that Mickey's running on the down low, comprised of his most brilliant students. And their whole plan, basically, is to go to Vegas every weekend and count cards in this very sort of structured system that Mickey has come up with and and win millions. Well, not millions, but lots. And they are super successful at that, but greed and personality clashes start to interfere. This is very strong. I like this movie a lot, but it could have used a greater focus on character. You You don't need to be a maths person or a blackjack person to follow this film. I can attest to that. Yeah, I'm not a maths person. I'm not a blackjack person. I didn't understand it. I didn't have to. This is more just an interesting tale of young people in, in a high state situation. It's it's the culture shock of it. You know, what if you were this poor struggling college student and then all of a sudden you're winning hundreds of thousands of dollars in Vegas. You're in the high roller suite. You're getting room service. And that's the stuff that this movie gets the most out of. It's It's the relationships between these characters in that environment. But there's not enough focus on the players other than Ben. He's got this love interest named Jill, played by Kate Bosworth, that more time needed to be spent on their relationship. She's really a character that only has any definition in her relationship to him. And uh, there's this ultimately disappointing antagonist that they really didn't need to bring in. This pit boss, uh, played by Lawrence Fishburne, who sort of prowls around control rooms looking at them on security monitors and, and just really, I mean, the movie was was another thing. It's a, it's a different thing than, than what this pit boss storyline is. And it, this pit boss thing is less interesting than what they already had going. But the most interesting character is Mickey because he is this, I mean, the power dynamic of that, of him being a, a professor who is sort of puppeting the, his students to win massive amounts of money for him and the way that he sort of exerts control on the group, social control, but then also through the control he has as as a teacher. That's all very interesting stuff. And he's a pretty sort of ruthless guy. I would have liked to see more of that. But the problem is, is that, again, there's just that attention to character isn't there. And so Spacey ends up playing more and more of just a just a sort of mustache twirling sort of jerk by the end which you know is not exactly a stretch for him apparently but given the dynamic that that character exists in it would have been so much more interesting to do something else with it it's a strong cast though i will say that sturgis's accent is pretty wobbly but it's look it's 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 probably the best criticism that you can give a movie the most complimentary way that you can damn it it's so compelling that you wish there was more to it. Mm, mm. But that's available for streaming on Netflix in Australia if anyone's interested. Lastly, this week I saw The Spiderwick Chronicles. It is a fantasy adventure film directed by Mark Waters. It's based on a series of books of the same name by Tony Ditalizzi and Holly Black. And it follows this family that move into an old house on the outskirts of a small town after the parents split. 
Uh, and there's this trio of, of young kids. And the one that you've got to focus on here, really, the protagonist is Jared, played by Freddie Highmore. He discovers this book because this whole there's this whole family legend about how, you know, the, the grandfather or the great uncle or someone disappeared. And then the, his daughter said that fairies took him and she got locked in the nuthouse. And he discovers this book that it was written by the disappeared Arthur Spiderwick, played by David Strathairn. And he finds out that all this fairy business is actually real and they, they exist in the woods surrounding the house. And so he's he's got to protect himself and his family from the ogre Mulgarath, played by Nick Nolte. This is just good, cheesy fun. You know, it's the old school adventure, old school kids adventure story. There's a secret. The kids know about it. The adults are useless. Only the children can save the world. It, it's just a lot of fun backstory and history going on. You've got a good location in this house, in this woods, that they tie into the history and to the lore in a really interesting way. I don't know, it isolates them enough that it gives them opportunities for the story, but then it has all of this connection to, like, it leaves them close enough to the town for different plot points. And it's it's just a location that works well within the structure of the piece. And you get some decent interfamily strife to get some character drama out of. Mary Louise Parker plays their mother. She's not telling them everything about the divorce. It's pretty obvious to adults when you're watching it that she's basically not telling them how big of an asshole her husband was, but she's just trying to sort of shield them from that. But that creates this friction between her and, and Jared especially. And there's this sort of thematic connection of the way that the family ends up having to rally to protect the house is that there's the thematic connection there of them having to rally to protect their own family unit and to... to build back up their family. But Highmore is really, really good. He's actually playing two of the three kids. He's playing twins. And he does a really good job of making them seem like different people with different syntax and different personalities and things. And uh, also you got Sarah Bolger as their older sister, and she's a lot of fun here. Strathan was born to do that kind of fantasy narration about goblins and ogres and things over over really excellent detailed illustrations. He was born to do that. And you get like a scene-stealing performance by Dame Joan, Dame Joan Plowright, who is really excellent. Like, she's the best performance in the thing, and, and she is actually kind of heartbreaking when she's given some of the material that she's given. Some very charming fantasy concepts as well. The creatures are invisible and unless they want you to see them or unless you have a, like a little ocular device that you, you look through. So that leads to some fun shenanigans where, you know, they're running away from things they can't see. But then the creature design in and of itself is actually very fun and charming. And it, it walks that nice line of being sort of childish and kid-friendly but also having that little bit of an edge to it. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're just just scary enough. And some of these creatures of voice... I mean, obviously Nick Nolte voices the ogre, but you've also got Ron Perlman as, like, the ogre's main minion. You've got Martin Short and Seth Rogen as a pair of, you know, nice fairies who are trying to help out the, the family. The script can be goofy, though. It can't resist cheesy jokes. It just... Every time it sees a dumb one-liner, it goes for it. It's, it is the genre of movie scripts. <laughs> but it, it is better than most of these sort of young adult fantasy things. It's in that whole sort of post-Harry Potter searching for the next big fantasy 
book adaptation series. In that whole era, this is one of the upper tier of that, I think. And it works too because it's a standalone film. It wraps up its story at the end. It doesn't bother trying to set up like a big five picture arc that it's never going to make. It's just the story that that ends. And, and again, like His Dark Materials and Percy Jackson and a whole bunch of other ones here, this is coming to television now. Disney Plus has a series adaptation of it coming. So once again, I, I continue to think that that is the place for these big world-building literary franchises to exist in now is, is television, especially now that they've got that. I, I mean, I saw the other day that Percy Jackson is using that I forget what it's called, but it's that like giant ILM. Yeah, it's the the, the shit they used for the Batman and the Mandalorian yeah. and all of that stuff, like the, the digital backdrops mm. and everything. I mean, especially with that stuff. I think that stuff is brilliant technology. Yeah, it's really cool. It's like straight up revolutionary shit, especially with lighting. Like the lighting is yeah. the real big deal because with a lot of CG backdrops and all of that, you got to be really careful with the lighting, or it looks frankly, shithouse, because shadows cost, directionality, that's a big deal, and this solves that problem. And obviously there's, like, relatively few of those stages at the moment because they're new technology, but, you know, 10 to 15 years now when there's a whole bunch more of them and and it's fairly easy for a decently-sized production to get a hold of them, you know, just, just imagine. Imagine how many shows doing interesting things we could have. But anyways, The Spiderwick Chronicles is available for streaming in Australia on Prime Video, Binge, Foxtel Now, and Stan, if anybody's interested. And that is me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? Okay, so first off, season four of Westworld has come out. I'm not going to get too much into that because this is the fourth season of a series. Strong start to the season. Really, really strong start. They have a cover of a song i quite like right at the end what song uh video games by lana del rey okay rami dawadi is just excellent with these covers black hole sun was in the first season i believe painted black he also did exit music for a film at the end of season one and its positioning was perfect and also like in the third season space oddity brain damage yeah a bunch of really cool needle drops the acting's still incredibly strong. The storytelling is just as mysterious as it's always been when they start a season. They, yeah. they never like to put you back into the world on solid ground. They want you questioning stuff mm. as soon as you jump back in. It'll be so interesting to see if whenever they get their final season, I suspect, I have a sneaking suspicion that season five might be their last yeah. season by some public statements that have been made. I think that would be reasonable. It will be so interesting to see if they can stick a landing in a way that satisfies people in this. I mean, nothing satisfies anyone these days as far as ending's concerned. And definitely, like, this more than any other series in the last 10 years reminds me of Lost in the way people talk about it and the way it yeah. does the mystery box thing. So it'll be interesting to see if it if it matches that series in, in public reception of its finale. We'll see. Uh, I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. Will it will it be exactly like Lost in the fact that it's actually a really, really good ending that makes sense with everything that comes before, but people don't understand it, so they complain about it? Potentially. It's highly likely. You can find Westworld on Binge. Or Foxtel. Or Foxtel. You can, uh, we also watched the final two episodes of the current season of Stranger Things. They came out just yesterday. No, no, it came out on Friday. We managed to binge that one night. 
strong ending, strong build-up for the next season. Yeah. Can I ask, are there any good big needle drops in those last two episodes? Metallica's Master of Puppets. Uh, Separate Lives by Journey. They did Running Up That Hill again, because obviously... You know for a fact that that last time in that, like, big culmination moment for Running Mm. Up the Hill, they added that in, like, after everyone went crazy about it. Yeah, I I truly get that feeling. That was not initially meant to be there. You can... Yeah, it was sick as hell, but it definitely felt like they took advantage of that month in between. Yeah, where people went nuts about it. I really enjoy the sort of much more dramatic orchestral version of Running Up That Hill that I've seen circulating around now. Very good. Yeah, they should release an official version, I reckon. But the Duffers sort of talked up the body count for this. Yeah, but... I don't... don't, They cashed a check that they couldn't quite... It was a lot bloodier. ...do anything with. It was bloodier. Physically, but... Yeah, but... Um, uh, so you can obviously find that on Netflix. Obviously, next season's going to be their final season. I wonder after, like, the sheer length of the episodes this season, Mm. like, that the shortest one was 63 minutes and the longest one was 139 minutes. Uh I wonder if they're going to stick with that sort of feature-length thing next for this last season. I mean, maybe, but there was a point in... That lo- the last episode, which is the longest one, where I was like, oh, you could have split that in two. Yeah, it's not necessary. Easy. Easy. That didn't need to be two hours. They just did it to hit an yeah. episode number, honestly. Exactly. Yeah. Which is weird, because it's an odd episode number. It's it's nine episodes. Yeah. yeah. You know, you could just make it ten real easily. I know. But, like, if, if we're... What would you say feature length is? Because I would say that 70 minutes it makes it feature length. See, it's difficult because TV is getting to that point where it's like an hour, hour 30. Yeah. Just average at this yeah. point. So it it gets a little bit... Sherlock always had really long episodes. Well, that was that was British television for you. But, I mean, like, theatrically released movies, I mean, the shortest ones I can think of are 70 to 80 minutes long. They're kids' movies, but they're 70 to 80 minutes long. Yeah. I mean, Madagascar's, like, under 80 minutes long. Yeah. But if if we're judging that by if we're judging it by seventy minutes, then literally only the third episode of season four is not feature length. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty wild. We also watched another Netflix original. It goes by the name of Spiderhead. It is a new movie by Joseph Kaczynski. You would know him as the director of Top Gun Maverick and Tron Legacy and bunch of other stuff. Oblivion? Yeah. In the near future, convicts are offered a chance to volunteer as medical subjects to shorten their sentences. One such subject, or a new drug, played by Miles Teller, takes a drug capable of generating feelings of love. And this starts him questioning the nature of a bunch of different stuff, questioning the ethics of scientists in charge of the program, played by Chris Hemsworth. It's really good movie. It's also yeah, very, really like very that. fascinating because I haven't seen Chris Hemsworth do a lot of villain stuff and he really, really nails it. Miles Teller is good. Journey Smollett is very good here too. But the real standout is Chris Hemsworth. He steals the show every scene he's in. He's electric. I just love stories about experiments kind of gone completely unethical. It's very much Black Mirror. It's very Black Mirror, but it's also got like Milgram experiment, Stanford prison experiment Mm. vibes. Yeah. Where you can tell that these motherfuckers are letting their curiosity surpass not only their moral boundaries, but also their real 
common sense. Yeah. This is based off of a short story that was published in the New Yorker. Yeah. And it's a New Yorker production, interestingly enough, mm. because they owned the copyright to it. And I read a bit of the short story, and they they obviously expand on things in the film, but they pretty much get it beat for beat up to a point. Yeah. And it's a fascinating concept because it's all about free will and mm. emotion and manufacturing consent. Uh, with this movie, it's got that clean black mirror look to it. It's like a two seconds into the future kind of situation. Yeah. Which is a type of science fiction that really appeals to me. I don't like it when entire worlds are transformed in science fiction stories. I find that a little bit much. Uh, so if it's like a two minutes into the future kind of situation, I always love it. Uh, the needle drops in this yes. movie are mm. fantastic. One of the big ones is she blinded me with science. Yeah, it gets used in a... <laughs> the way it's used is scene? just so, so funny. Have you heard the William Shatner cover of She Blinded Me With Science? Uh, it's wild. It is. <laughs> Oh, it's the it's everything you want out of a William Shatner cover of Blinder with Science. It's peak. But the way that he just shouts, Science! It is peak Shatner. The sphere's in commotion. And uh, the elements in harmony. She blinded me with science. Science! Blinded me with science. Oh, uh, then hit me with technology. And I think it's going to be a long, long time till Touchdown brings me round again to find. Not the man they think I am at home. Oh no. No, no. I'm the Rocket Man. Burning out his fuse out here. Alone! I would highly recommend Spiderhead. Yeah, and the score by John Trapneys is pretty good too. Yeah. The performances are excellent. It's fascinating. And it's shot incredibly well. Everyone is both charming and has moments of true intensity. There's a scene where Chris Hemsworth essentially cudgels Miles Teller into submission with real, like, bullshit gaslighting, friendship yeah. bombing techniques. Yeah. And it's so uncomfortable because <laughs> I have seen so many situations in which people have done that. Yeah. And it's like cult leader territory. It's cult leader territory. And it felt so grounded and real uh you can find that on netflix also they filmed it a lot of stuff in the wet sundays yeah. and the, on the, the gold the stuff coast we see outside Gorgeous. Is like beautiful beautiful stuff yeah we're gonna save the other good movie till last but we're gonna have to discuss some stuff first amityville evil never dies also known as amityville clown house if you've decided yeah. you don't care anymore uh, I guess you could say that Dustin Ferguson directed this, if you're going to be charitable. <laughs> uh, right after the supernatural encounter with Raw Terror, or that is apparently the Amityville Legacy slash Toy Box from 2016, the cursed vintage monkey toy. You know the ones that go, <coughs> and clap the symbols together? It finds its way into the home of a married couple, Ben and Michelle. I'm not going to bother listing their names. You're not going to remember them or recognize them. Uh, once more, the creepy vessel of evil starts to spread its demonic force, which apparently stems from the blood-drenched DeFeo murders. Probably not, though. Uh, into this new house, and before long, the otherwise happy Ben begins to change. Michelle hears terrifying sounds coming from the attic as Emmett powerful malevolent force return to continue its dark 
Legacy. Another shit one. Uh, this follows exactly after Amityville Legacy, and the first, I don't know, 15 minutes, e- even that, is the sort of, like, follow-up to the to that movie's epilogue. Yeah. Which has a person dress up as a clown gone down his family. Okay, this is kind of what That's I've come- That's what I wanted. Like, this is what I've come here for, scary clown shit, family annihilator stuff. That's the point. Clown house. It's bad, it's performed awfully, it's shot even worse, but hey- Amityville Clown House. I wanted a clown and a house, and I barely got that in this movie. Then it goes back to the monkey. That's the first 15 minutes, and then it's the monkey shit again. I don't- We saw the monkey shit already. We got the monkey shit already, and the two actors in the sequence are terrible. Makeup effects are laughable, but the most egregious element of this movie is the last, what would you say, 25 minutes? Is a recap of Amityville fucking toy box <laughs> you have seen i imagine uh silent night deadly night yeah you've seen silent night deadly night too of course garbage day huh? no you know how that recaps essentially the first film yeah that does it yeah. better because we get all of the highlights i suppose from out of toy box just crammed into the end of this one and it's meant to be significant somehow it's self-indulgent in the worst possible way. At least in Silent Night, Daily Night 2, there was narration. I'm not someone who will immediately decry a filmmaker for doing something self-indulgent. Shit. The Snyder Cut of Justice League, I love it. And that is possibly the most self-indulgent thing I've seen in a long time. Stranger Things, the new season, the last episode, incredibly self-indulgent. They've kind of earned that right. Dustin Ferguson, he's producing... Too many movies a year? More than is reasonable? This is just another really, really bad one. And it makes me so sad that this is the state of how the franchise is now. And yes, Mark Patton, the guy from Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, is in the movie. Yes, he is the best part of the movie. Yeah. No, I don't know why he's in it. Just to get those questions out of the way. I can tell you exactly why he's in it. Just by gesturing towards his IMDb page between the years that Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 came out and the years that this movie came out. That's yeah. why he's in this movie. <laughs> which, is a, which is a shame, because... He's much better than this Which movie. is a shame, because Nightmare 2 is perhaps my... Yeah, I'll just go ahead and say it, favourite of that franchise. It just seems like after, what, 1996, the franchise has got really just lazy shit howls hmm. and barring stuff like the remake, which has its own issues, and buying stuff like Amityville Awakening, which is like the first time a studio has been involved in these since the 90s. They're all just lazy tax write-offs. Mm. Cash grabs. Cash grabs. For the very little cash that these are going to get. I just get angrier and angrier with these things, because not only... It was weird in the original movies that we were talking about the deaths of real people, but... It's worse now that it's just really cheap. Uh, we watched another one as well, but John's going to tell about that one because yep. I fell asleep. Yes. We watched Amityville Dollhouse, directed by Steve White. There was actually a dollhouse in this one. So. Yes, there was a dollhouse in this. No false advertising there. A dollhouse, which is a replica of the infamous Amityville haunted house, is given to a little girl. Soon after, all sorts of horrible, unexplained accidents start to occur in the family's home. 
The family must work together to fight off the terrifying evil that has inhabited their lives. So, what's good about this movie is that it is taking cues from It's About Time and New Generation, in the sense that it is a, very much like Cloverfield Paradox, a movie that is being press-ganged into the plotline of a franchise that it had nothing to do with prior. And in that sense, it has original ideas. It goes weirdly sexual in moments. It goes bizarrely fantasy-esque in others. We see actual God's Honest demons, like proper red skin, horns, bat wings, the whole shebang. There's a weird little goblin bloke. He's there too. I think he holds a cudgel in his hand because he's a nasty little freak like that. There's a giant mouse at one point in the movie, which is a very interesting effect. Yes, Holly, you missed it. But this at least has ideas. And I have to praise Steve White and the creatives behind this for that. It is the lesser out of the better ones, however. So would you say it's better or worse than the lamp one? Uh, Evil Escapes, that's... That's that a one. little bit better than the lamp one. Just a just just a little bit, just due to those interesting little so, effects. Like it and... doesn't touch. It's about time now. Oh, absolutely not. Nowhere close. Uh, and it gets nowhere close to New Generation, which is the one with the mirror. Yeah. Either it at least has ideas, which I praise it for. A few little issues with the children's acting and the teenagers' acting. But that is kind of to be expected. This is this wasn't released in cinemas. This is a pretty much a TV film. And it has that sort of quality. But there's real passion behind this movie. And I have to appreciate that. There's also some really... There's a really interesting fire stunt. Some really good makeup effects on burns and stuff here. I saw that bit. Yeah, and there's some really also some really cool bits of music as well there's some interesting beats like it seems like whenever the adults are away from the house they're sort of back to normal back to the way they were before they came into contact with the dollhouse but the moment they're back in the house they're back to being influenced weird and nasty and having nightmares and all of that stuff and that's a very interesting thing that the Amityville movies do. So you can find that on Tubi. It is the lesser of the best ones, but is still pretty decent with some decent performances. We have also watched a Shudder original, The Mortuary Collection, directed by Ryan Spindell, who is a director I will be watching from here on out. In the phantasmagorical town of Raven's End, a misguided young girl takes refuge in a decrepit old mortuary. The eccentric undertaker chronicles the strange history of the town through a series of twisted tales, each more terrifying than the last. But the young girl's world is unhinged when she discovers that the final story is her own. This is fantastic. It's starring Clancy Brown as Montgomery Dark, the mortuary attendant, or the mortician is the word. He's fantastic. He was such a get for this movie. It also stars Jacob Elordi as a character in one of the sequences, Mike C. Nelson, not Mike T. Nelson, have to put that out there, and Caitlin Custer. This is great. It is 
so inventive. The different sequences in this film, because it's an anthology piece, are brilliant. They only get better as it goes along. One of the sequences in particular is called Till Death Do Us Part, and has one of the best sequences in an elevator that I've ever seen in a horror movie. It is beautiful in how horrifying it is. It is almost Guillermo del Toro-esque levels of horrific beauty. And it is fantastic. If del Toro saw this sequence, he would say, yes, exactly. That's what I'm talking about. Someone finally gets it. Someone finally gets it, yeah. There's also some just really inventive stories here. You've got a story about a young man who doesn't practice safe sex and becomes pregnant. But knowing what happens in it doesn't ruin the quality of the story. It is very, very good. And Jacob Elordi is great here. I have to say, like, the cinematography and the use of color is also really good. You can tell that there's a lot of passion behind the project. And that goes a hell of a long way to making it really charming. There's a lot of really cool effects that they use, and specifically that final sequence. The final story, rather than the final sequence. There's a scene Mm. where they use light, and like flashing light, really interestingly. And the way they pull the rug out from under you. The end of that sequence is really, really well done. Yeah, and there's also a really cool thing that Ryan Spindell did. So he directed a short film called The Babysitter Murders a few years prior to this. And the final story in this is that short film. Mm. Okay. He just took another swing at it for the Mortuary Collection. No, no, it is it. Oh, for real? Full on. Yeah, it is it. And it has, like, the title come up and everything, which is really cool. And they tie it into the wraparound segment really, really well. And actually makes the short film better because of it, because we get a bit of added context through world-building before we get to see this short film. And it just shows that he had talent from the get-go. It's a very 80s sequence with a lot of inventive kills and really inventive ideas on how to twist things. Turns of the screw, twists of the knife. He's a very interesting director and has an eye for the gothic, And I will be following his career with great interest in the future. There's also a fantastic score by the Mondo Boys. And they go into Danny Elfman territory, John Carpenter territory, Alexandre Desplat territory. It is fantastic. They also write some original songs for the film. This was fantastic. I'm so glad I watched this. Again, you need to get Shudder so you can watch this and a lot of the other originals that Shudder has. It is an incredible service. Just be aware, it can be a little spotty with the streaming. We tried to watch another thing the other night, and I don't know, it's inconsistent in terms of reliability. Yeah, I think it's to do with servers and stuff, because they're smaller than Netflix, they're smaller than Stan. Credit to them also, they're actually the one streaming service that really consistently puts out their products on DVD and Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah, yeah true. They got they got no issue with that sort of thing. And 
that's honestly commendable because not a lot of other services are doing that. Uh, yeah, the ones if you if you actually look at like Netflix and Amazon and that stuff, the the shows that make it out to DVD and Blu-ray are there, there are the ones that are produced by production companies other than the um, company that owns the service. Yeah. It's like the the crown comes out on Blu-ray because I think that's Sony. Yeah, the boys comes out on Blu-ray, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I think the, off the top of my head, the only thing I can even think of that any of these streaming services that have actually put out themselves is I think that Netflix put out the first two seasons of Stranger Things in America only as like Best Buy exclusives or Walmart exclusives or something. Ah, uh, I hate that. That's mm. it's dicey. No, but this was fantastic. Yeah, really. It would be right stuff. up your alley, Lawson. Right. Let me up just your check alley. here. I want to see whether I actually have it on the list because the name rings a bell, and it's 2019. And just gotta say, good on you for getting Clancy Brown. He is such a get. Oh, he's fantastic. Like, here. Well, you yeah, can of tell course. That- he was. He's so busy recording all of the VO for the um, post-apocalyptic wasteland in in Harley's premonitions. <laughs> I mean, not not only that, he's Obviously, he's doing that to preempt the eventual singularity, but he's also an incredible voice actor and just actor generally. He's also, like, consistently working. Yeah, yeah. he's brilliant, and I can just imagine Spindell, after getting the call, like, fuck yeah! I got no, the brown looks, stuff. Looks like I actually don't have it on the list. Oh, you should add it. I think you, It's I a think shadow you in the cloud to- situation, my guy. <laughs> It's okay. right up your alley. I do have mechanisms for that, so I will have a look at it. Uh, so there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That is what we've seen within the week. Now we will play for you the trailer to 10 Cloverfield Lane. Children behave. That's what they say when we're together. And watch how you play. the trailer for 10 Cloverfield Lane. It is a thriller directed by Dan Trachtenberg, and it is a, I don't know, sequel, spin-off, whatever, to Cloverfield. Thematic sibling. Michelle, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, has survived the apocalypse. At least, that's what the bearded creeper keeping her chained in his underground bunker tells her. Said creeper is Howard, played by John Goodman, and it's his claim that, with an unknown force about to attack, 
He discovered her unconscious in a car crash while rushing to his survival bunker. He's a bit of a nut, you see. A doomsday prepper with tinfoil hat theories about everything under the sun. Fair play to him. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. That's the view of Emmett, played by John Gallagher Jr., the bunker's only other occupant. It's his testimony that calms Michelle a little. He saw an incredible flash of light hit the city from a distance and immediately rushed to Howard's, where he forced his way in just before the other man locked the door. Still, Michelle can't get rid of nagging questions. Eventually, after the situation is explained, she is unchained and allowed to roam. But Howard is erratic and unpredictable, prone to extreme mood swings and weird attempts to exert social control over her. Also, she keeps hearing sounds above ground, stuff that sounds suspiciously like car engines. As the dynamic in the bunker becomes increasingly toxic, Michelle must decide who to trust and what to do. Does she remain underground with a man who may well be lying to her, or does she risk her very life in an attempt to escape into a world that may not exist anymore? So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we think of 10 Cloverfield Lane. Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I really like this movie. I always love it when an actor is given the chance to be in one of these shows because it's very much like a play and it's all about character and relationships up until the end, of course. And this is thematically rich. It's basically about America after 9-11. And... It's very interesting in that sense. All right, you ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. John Goodman is a powerhouse here. Mary Elizabeth Winstead is really, really excellent as well. I love detention. I am always uncomfortable watching this movie. I have that, like, pressure on the lower part of my back that I get when I'm kind of expecting things to kind of go wrong. John Goodman is really good at making the tension and making me kind of afraid. Yeah, I'm. I sorry. I can't just breeze by past that. You you have like a spidey sense no, in your lower like, back when things are about to go wrong. I physically tense up, right? When I'm like stressed. That's kind of a different way of explaining it than a point of pressure on your lower back when you feel like things are starting to go wrong. It's also not necessarily a spidey sense. The way I tense up my body, I kind of like scrunch up a little bit, and that causes a lot yeah. of that back strain and the pressure on my lower back it's a physiological response yeah. Lawson. I'm, I'm just saying psychic. that there's a clearer way to explain that say that you tense up or something because the way that you did pitch it sounded almost like you know you had some sort of sixth sense that was relegated to your lower back a sense for danger and trouble or something and that's <laughs> that threw me it's like a dog his hackles go on mm. i love this movie uh it was my favorite movie of 2016 i am very passionate about it. I think it's got great performances. John Goodman is just a showstopper of a figure. I think that the ambiguity is wonderful. I am very interested to have that conversation with you, John, about the 9-11 thing, because I actually don't see much of it in here. But I do have a problem with its Cloverfield connection. I think it would have been stronger as a standalone film. Now, I do have a production history here. We talked last week about the efforts to make a Cloverfield sequel and how eventually they settled on turning existing projects into them. And they wanted to do a different kind of movie because they had decided that the influx of kaiju movies after Cloverfield's release, Godzilla, Pacific Rim, etc., 
had flooded the market. And that's how 10 Cloverfield Lane got started. It began life as a spec script called The Seller, written by Josh Campbell and Matt Stoiken. It was designed to be a micro-budget film, a tiny little thing that all took place underground, really, or close to it. Had no aliens in it in the original draft, and that was bought by Paramount in 2012 for further development in their production deal with Bad Robot. Damien Chazelle was hired to rewrite the film and direct it. He did do a rewrite, but then Whiplash got a green light, and that was his passion project, so he departed for that. And then, of course, La La Land, for which he won an Oscar for Best Directing. So, you know, I love this movie, but he made good choices. In April of 2014, the film got a green light under the new title Valencia. Dan Trachtenberg was hired to direct. It was his first feature film that he's ever directed, and to date, his only one. He's he's helming that new Predator movie that's coming out later this year, but he hasn't actually directed a movie since 10 Cloverfield Lane. And the cast was all on board by September, and they began filming in October. The filming took place from October to December, and it was shot in chronological order. And the ending stuff was obviously the last stuff to shoot because it required them to pretty much destroy the set. During production, though, Bad Robots started to eye it as a possible Cloverfield sequel. They knew they couldn't make it a direct sequel, but they thought they could make it what they called a blood relative. And it gets a little bit difficult to track down when the ending was changed to feature aliens. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead said there was no substantial rewrites during production. But the actors also didn't know it was a Cloverfield movie until a few days before the trailer premiere with the new title. What I can tell you is that there were a few iterations of this story. In one, Harwood is actually a good guy. He's weird, he's awkward, but he's doing his best. When he tells Michelle that he found her and saved her, that's you're supposed to take that at face value. Like, that's what he did. It's actually Emmett who's the threat and is playing Michelle against Howard. In this version, Michelle is younger as well. She is a teenager as opposed to the, I suppose, early 30s that she is in the movie. A later version was much closer to what we got, but it also had a very different ending. In that one, after Howard kills Emmett, Michelle doesn't set the place on fire, but she does escape. And Howard is so far gone and so upset about this, that he doesn't even care about the infection anymore and he runs up above ground without a suit. That leads to a cat and mouse in Howard's farmhouse, which concludes when Michelle gets a hold of a gun and shoots him in the knee. They have a final conversation in which he basically rants about how hard done by he is and what an awful woman his ex-wife is and what an ungrateful daughter he has. And then she leaves him there, still alive, and he tells her to be careful. She travels down deserted roads until she finally sees the city in the distance. It's a smouldering ruin. No explanation is given. She's out of options. She's out of time. She unzips her suit and takes breath, cut to black. If public statements are to be believed, the ending was changed before it became a Cloverfield movie. It was retooled during production, but not that much is clear beyond that. Your mileage may vary on, on where you see the seams here. But what is clear is that the ending that we got was a fairly late shift in development. The film was revealed on the 15th of January 2016, less than two months before it was released. The title was changed to 10 Cloverfield Lane, and they announced that through the release of a very ambiguous trailer with not a lot of dialogue at all, which will be the trailer that you have heard, listeners, because it is the only trailer for this movie that exists. They love that stuff with this early Cloverfield. Yeah. 
There's some light viral marketing elements, mostly to do with Harvard and his work with satellites, which is prompting his alarm. He, it's again connecting to that Japanese corporation in some way that I was talking about last week and, you know, the satellite that fell down and stuff like that. But there were also social media accounts created for Howard's daughter with stuff in the comment section from Howard begging her to come home and instructions on how to escape her mother and how to hotwire a car and stuff like that so that she could drive cross country to go back to him. But the movie was released on the 11th of March 2016 in the United States. Its widest release was in 3,427 theatres and it opened number two against The Brothers Grimsby and Eye in the Sky but it was beaten by the second week of Zootopia. It was a financial success. It made $110 million worldwide on a $15 million budget, and it was the 76th highest grossing film of 2016. It was released in Australia the day prior, on the 10th of March 2016. Its widest release here was in 232 theatres, but we let the team down. It was number four against the Brothers Grimsby, which did beat it this time and it made $3 million of its total gross here. The film received universal critical acclaim. It has a 90% Rotten Tomato score. The critics' consensus there reads, Smart, solidly crafted, and palpably tense, 10 Cloverfield Lane makes the most of its confined setting and outstanding cast, and suggests a new frontier for franchise filmmaking. Audiences, however, were surprisingly lukewarm. They gave it a B-minus cinema score. Particular attention in all of the reviews was paid to John Goodman. Uh, there were even some discussions. I mean, that was March of the years, but there were even some discussions that it was like the first Academy Award worthy performance of the year. Some tentative hopes that maybe he would re be remembered almost a year from then when the next Oscars came round, but of course he wasn't. They might have had a better chance if they hadn't put the aliens in at the end. A common point of, cr of criticism, which I know we will talk about, was the fact that it was a Cloverfield movie. It was nominated for a bunch of different awards, mostly from more specialist groups, though. Nothing from, like, big groups like the Oscars or anything like that. It had a significant presence at the Saturn Awards, where it won Best Thriller Film, Best Actress for Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and Best Supporting Actor for John Goodman, although I would contest that. I would say that he's the best actor, not supporting actor, because if, if he's supporting actor than who's the lead actor in that movie. It was also nominated for Best Editing. The Directors Guild of America nominated Dan Trachtenberg for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in First Time Feature Film, which was pretty much the biggest nomination that it got. Teen Choice Awards nominated for Choice Movie Drama, which I find interesting. The teens didn't think it was thrilling enough to nominate it as a thriller. It was Choice Movie Drama. For a few years after this they were pretty open, actually, about their Cloververse plans. There, were, there is one slight connection in this movie to the Cloverfield Paradox. Donald Logue has a cameo in the Cloverfield Paradox as a scientist who shares Howard's surname. And there's been a lot of, like, headcanon among the fan community that he is Howard's brother and that, I mean, he and Howard share sort of similar kind of conspiracy theory, wild and wacky, but ultimately turning out to be correct kind of theories. And also that character that Donald Logue plays is actually, his scene in the movie is in an, an interview on a news program and the journalist interviewing him is the woman that tries to get into, or is the actress at least, that tries to get into the bunker but is has her face melted off. 
which seems intentional, very intentional. Mm. There was a lot of reporting that... You remember that zombie movie Overlord? Yeah. Mm. There was a lot of reporting that that was originally a Cloverfield movie, but if that was true, then that was changed after Paradox disappointed. It was also revealed recently, actually, that in its developmental stages, A Quiet Place was considered as an instalment of the series. It was later decided to keep it as a standalone film instead. That, however, was decided before the the Cloverfield Paradox was released, so that was more of a creative decision rather than in response to disappointment with Paradox. I reiterate, as I did last week, that an actual Cloverfield sequel is in development, and I have checked. It's They've already said... It will not be found footage. So that is the production history for 10 Cloverfield Lane. And I want to start off by setting a rule that I think we should save the ending for being one of the last things we talk about. Because it is one of those situations where it it changes a lot once you know the answer. I don't don't know. Where do we start off here? I suppose, like, how, how hyped were you for this movie when it was announced? Were you excited at all about the idea of a surprise Cloverfield movie? I saw the trailer. Yeah, I knew it had, like, crazy, intense John Goodman. I've always found stories about bunkers being trapped in the bunker with a psycho to be really, really compelling stuff. They did a similar thing in Under the Dome in the first season, but I hadn't really responded to Cloverfield initially at that point in time, and honestly, I hadn't really thought about it. I knew I was interested in it, but I don't know if I was kicking down the doors demanding the cinema to take my money. <laughs> Did you end up seeing it in the cinemas? No, not in cinemas. Watched it at home when it came out on home release. And thoroughly enjoyed mm. it. I was pretty stoked for this movie. I was very into Cloverfield, and that first trailer was everything that I needed to know. <laughs> it was it was a surprise. I mean, it's I mean, at this point, the Cloverfield thing, I mean, the surprise of Cloverfield, the, the shadow drop of these movies has become part of the gimmick in a way, and almost to the point where you sort of roll your eyes about it. And uh, I mean, it's become kind of cliché, but... It's always exciting. Yeah, I don't think anyone was expecting it when it happened, Mm. because it had been so many years since they had last talked about a Cloverfield sequel, and there hadn't really been conversation about doing what they ended up doing, which is Mm. doing a much smaller, much more different thing. I was interested in the way that it was going to connect to the first movie, and I shouldn't have been. <laughs> but w- what I actually got, I mean, I knew John Goodman before before I saw this movie. I'd seen him in plenty of things. I'd seen him in comedies and dramas and and all sorts of things. I there's a there's an underloved, underseen Amazon series. It was one of the first things they ever greenlit. I think it might have been their first comedy series they ever greenlit called Alpha House, which is about four. Republican congressmen who share a house while they're in Washington for their congressional duties. And John Goodman played this very sort of angry, southern, blustery guy who was very sort of dominating. And, and he was... that That's really the first time I sort of sat up and paid attention to, to John Goodman because it was sort of like... It was like Veep, but not quite as harsh mm. um, and perhaps a little more silly. But he has been an actor that I've paid attention to ever since, and the opportunity to see him in something where he's a little bit more dangerous, mm. I mean, that was one of those. It, it, it is one of those things. It's like Heath Ledger and the Joker, or it's like that guy from Red Rocket last year. There is something about seeing an actor do something that you didn't know they could do. Yeah. And that's definitely a factor here with John Goodman. 
I mean, I know that he had played characters with a bit of an edge to them in stuff like the Coen Brothers' earlier films. I hadn't seen those at the time, though, and he never got to as threatening a place in those as he did here. He's like Sully from Monsters, Inc. Hmm. You know? He's that nice, kind of, like, warm voice kind of guy. And we talk about the fact that it's a single location story, really. It could be done as a play, frankly. The last ten minutes couldn't, but if you used that that second version of the ending that I talked about, the one where she gets up and they have a brief cat and mouse and then an extended conversation before she leaves. If you took that ending and pasted it over what we got, you could easily turn this into a stage play. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Like, easily. As with any of those sort of very contained, tight stories with a small cast and, and a limited amount of locations, it's so dependent on the acting mm. and the writing and both of those things are top tier here. Oh, absolutely. What I like so much about Goodman's performance is that it's not that I start to feel comfortable with him, because I don't. He has a hair-trigger temper here as Howard, and it's when he starts to soften is where I get the most tense, because you know he can flip on a dime. Mm. I don't know, just watching Goodman walk that tightrope is just so fascinating. Like, as an actor, watching his process and watching how he's focused on the little things to make the character work. Like, how he, like, scrunches up his hands constantly as, like, a visual indicator that he's kind of losing it. The breathing. That breathing is so important. That shallow breathing that he's constantly doing. It's like he's worked himself up as a performer into always running at 11 and so when he does that breathing it's as though he's exhausted all the time Hmm. like he's always in fight or flight mode like he's never relaxing and that's so compelling to watch goodman at the top of his craft in this project he is particularly unable to contain his emotions Mm. Um, it always comes through, his frustration, his anger, and it, it always comes through. It is jealousy. And he's playing the character in a way, and the character's written in a way, I mean, there's something diagnosable there. Mm. I don't know what it is. There's there's parts of it that seem like a borderline personality disorder or something, but then there's other parts that seem a little more mundane, something like, like there are flashes that remind me of the autistic spectrum. But one thing also that it's doing, really, is it's weaponizing John Goodman. Yeah. It's weaponizing the John Goodman we know, because we know him... I mean, for most people, he is Dan on Roseanne. Yeah. You know? He's the dad. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He's he's like a big teddy bear. Yeah, like, we watched a bunch of Roseanne when mm. we were little, and he was kind of like a reliable figure there. Yeah. Uh, before the show started to get kind of crazy <laughs> with its plot lines. But he's he's usually funny. He's usually sweet. He's usually, like, yeah. very warm. And he just, like, seems that way as an actual person. Yeah. This movie weaponizes him in a way that is so interesting because it's, it's using our pre-existing relationship with him in addition to Goodman's own considerable talent. Mm. Goodman singularly manages to walk that line where you're honestly not sure. Yeah, you know, yeah. you're you're honestly not sure the first time you watch this if he is dangerous or if he's just awkward and got a bit of an anger management problem. The other thing is you don't know if he believes there is gas out there 
or if he's just lying full stop. You just don't know. And he makes you sort of change your mind over multiple times. And because we get little drops of information about his past, about his daughter, he shows that photo to Michelle, and Emmett's like, that's that's not his daughter, that's a girl who went missing like a year or two ago. was found in a lake not too far Mm. away. I mean, that's the build-up. That's the moment where you know that he's bad news. But, Mm. like, up to that point, I mean, he's actually a fairly cunning character. Oh, yeah. He's strategized. Yeah. I mean, I think that 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 scene where he he tells Michelle that he was the one who ran her off the road, Mm. I don't think that's... I think he, he does that because he knows that she saw his car. Yeah. With the paint smears on it. It's particularly cunning. Yeah. But at the same time, if you're watching it the first time, he might just be telling the truth. Exactly. Mm. It's so interesting, his character. John and I, when we were watching the movie this time, we still had Cloverfield in mind, the first Cloverfield in mind. And so we developed an allegorical reading of this movie to sort of at least make it a thematic, not so much parallel, but evolution on Cloverfield. Cloverfield, the first movie, is on the ground, as it happens. Immediate response, the emergency response, the people experiencing the event. Ten Cloverfield Lane is afterwards. Howard is America. He's the overreach. He is the... Howard is the figure that will tell you to be safe. He will force you into situations where he can control your safety. Like, one of the lines that really just struck me this time is... All the stuff he says about gratitude. Hmm. I am keeping you safe. I brought you down here, and this is how you repay me? That stuff? You need to eat, you need to rest, and you need to start showing me a little bit more gratitude. I like that reading. I like that a lot. And then with with all of the not knowing what's going on Hmm. above ground and whether Howard's telling the truth or not, I mean, that sort of connects to the whole... Weapons of mass destruction and the quagmire of the Iraq war and all of that. And a character like Emmett, who tries to placate... Emmett is Tony Blair. (laughs) Emmett helped build the bunker. He says that. But Emmett is the kind of guy who is complacent. He's the complacency. The Patriot Act. I'm always watching. Yeah. Emmett is the complacency that helped build the structures that John Goodman represents what the bunker represents and michelle is this is the civilian see that's really good i like that a lot i think that fits really well we started conceiving of cloverfield as a thematic duology because i don't know how paradox relates even if it or if it does to any stretch i would struggle to put any sort of 9-11 connection to paradox i mean there's a connection of you know sort of crisis and decisions made Mm. i mean it is i mentioned it the cloverfield paradox takes place in the future when there's this like sort of massive energy crisis and everyone's at each other's throats over like fuel and oil and and that so there's a sort of level of emergency and discord and people reacting to that but it doesn't nearly fit as cleanly as this this duology has a clear relationship with itself this is an article in junkie about 10 cloverfield lane as a response film to post 9 11 politics this is a quote from it written by dave crew you see the position michelle and maybe emmett find themselves in trapped in howard's bunker 
is analogous to the situation that Americans and much of the Western world find themselves in, in the shadow of September 11th, in the middle of a so-called war on terror. Michelle's freedom is curtailed, any right to privacy is eroded entirely. Howard even monitors her bathroom usage when she first awakens. These are sacrifices justified by Howard as a necessary measure to ensure her safety. He is a more outwardly sinister Donald Rumsfeld, asking the American public to trust him on known unknowns and unknown unknowns. Perhaps the threat is real. As mentioned, Emmett supports his story of a distant cataclysm, and there are eviscerated livestock. Or perhaps Howard's exaggerating to suit his own agenda. But even if he isn't, that doesn't justify his possessive behavior, nor explain the dubiousness of his past behavior. Where should Michelle draw the line between her own physical safety and her personal independence? Mm. Obviously, we didn't come to this reading just out of the blue. We're not the first people to come up with this. With all of the context of the discussion around Cloverfield playing on our minds and trying to find that kind of thematic link, we sort of started seeing some of the lines that Mm. uh, Howard would say as being very much about that, being about someone who prepares for the worst. They talk about Howard working on satellites. He was part of the Navy. He has military background. And it's, he's John Goodman. America's dad from Roseanne. It's interesting that it melds so well when the basic story structure that we're describing was there long before Mm. it became a Cloverfield movie. And that actually that's only there as a reading because it's a Cloverfield movie. If this was still called Valencia and at the end of the, I like it had one of those first two endings, we wouldn't be talking about this as a 9-11 allegory. I think you still could, because it's not necessarily just the Cloverfield connection. It's like, there is stuff there, but it just gets brought more to the forefront because of how very obvious Cloverfield was. Also, outside of the analogy here, what's dangerous about Howard is the stuff with the girl he initially kidnapped, that's before the aliens. Yeah. That's what he's doing is not a response to the world ending. He was going to do this regardless. Yeah, and if you just look at the way that Howard acts, he sort of, he stumps around the place. You know, he's physically bigger than everyone else. He He's the one who is the only one allowed to have a weapon or allowed to have secrets. Well, it's no surprise that the two other people in the bunker, one of them has an injured leg, the other has a broken arm. They're physically handicapped. It's John Goodman. He is significantly bigger than both of his co-stars. He is, as a physical force, he could overpower them both quite easily. Yeah. And he does. And that sort of adds to the sort of... I mean, there there is a physical threat there that is always simmering underneath and only really comes out entirely at the, mm. at the end, which is the, I mean, you put Mary Elizabeth Winstead and, and John Goodman back to back. She's tiny compared to him. Mm. And just in terms of his, his physical frame, he overwhelms her. So Also thematically, if you look at it as Howard being representative of American governance and the Patriot Act, he also doesn't want them to make jokes about the situation, even though that's a very human thing Mm. to do. In a sense, he's censoring them. He doesn't want them to make physical contact with each other as sort of like this puritanical thing of keeping her... Yeah. His daughter. And and here's the important thing. During the game they were playing, 
he never yeah. thinks of the word woman. First word, uh, tiny. Um, small, pygmy, um, little. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. All right, uh, second word. Ooh, uh, Michelle is a... Uh, 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 girl. Uh, a girl, a child. Um, uh, uh, she's a girl. Um, no, she's, she's older, see? So she is a... Little princess? Um, no, it was woman. Um, little women. Mm. Well... Woman. Oh. <laughs> Next time, try being a little more specific. Yeah, it's that sort of paternal thing of treating her as like a little girl who can't make decisions for yeah. herself, which, I mean, recent, recent events would yeah. back that in as a unfortunately accurate representation of high-level American governance. So, like, it's all there. I do like the touch when he talks about the table. Use coasters and placemats. Yeah. He's overbearing up to that point. He's, he's crazy, but that's fair. But it's those little details that make him work as a figure of ambiguity. Mm. I mean, yeah. he, he is... He doesn't actually do... He raises red flags. He has an anger problem. I mean, the, the scene where he snaps at the dinner table. I mean, that's, that's such an intense sequence. But in terms of his actual behaviour and what he says, he doesn't raise red flags as being as being untrustworthy or a yeah. physical threat mm. until very, very late in the film. Until they find the earring. Yes, we, we don't have proof mm. that he is a bad guy. We What we have... Sure, he's a little dodgy, yeah, well, but... We, that's what I'm saying. We don't have proof that he's a bad guy. What we have is the discomfort that's being brought by yeah. the performance. Yeah. And I think that's pretty crucial. Another thing that plays in the movie's favour is the deliberate vagueness of the first interaction yeah i i honestly frankly i feel like there's ways that harwood could have calmed her down more <laughs> yeah yeah like just sitting down and being like here's the deal but also like the reason that you're chained is because your leg was broken and you kept moving around while yeah. you were unconscious and i needed to keep it straight i mean there are ways i'm just saying <laughs> when i kidnap women i always try to put them at at ease and there are ways to do that. <laughs> you have to bring the level down. You need to make everything chill like we're a couple like, of if, if I were kidnapped by John Goodman and kept in his basement, I would say, look, man, you're being a little vague here. You gotta, yeah. you gotta give me more info. Yeah, I'd say, like, John, tell me, did you know from the very start that Roseanne was a bit off or did that sort of come as a surprise? <laughs> were you as shocked as we all were when she tried to sing the national anthem. I love that she is like a, a, a symbol for the exact kind of people now that were so furious when she did that. Like, my God. If I was in that situation, if that was me instead of Mary Elizabeth Winstead, how long do you reckon Not I would long. last? Hmm. But the questions that I would ask. <laughs> he would ask, have choked you well, out early. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you would have been, you would have been straight <laughs> in the barrel. You would have you would have been like half an hour. Like you would never have met Emmett, or em if you were yeah, you would never have met Emmett. You would have like I was in that basement. My first questions would be, okay, so why am I chained? Okay, so I'm in the bunker for my own safety. Got it. But I'm gonna need context. Why? 
Why is it unsafe to go out there with the... Okay, the air's poisonous. Okay, but I'm gonna need a little bit more evidence than just to take your word on it. Because it doesn't look like gas could do that to the Your pigs. insistence would rattle his cage way more than Emmett does. You'd be making a bunch of dumb jokes and puns <laughs> and things. I mean, you just... You just... Okay, do you want to hear a dumb pun? Yeah. That I came up okay. with? Okay. Okay, so... Why did the cow and the bull disagree in divorce court? Why? Because they each wanted calf of everything. See, and you say that joke at the dinner table, he's just like, I can't do this, and he takes out the gun. <laughs> you just want to hit him. <laughs> yeah. But I really like Mary Elizabeth Winstead here. She's great. She, she does all of the right things. Hmm. What I like about her performance is that her character has backstory. We get a little smidge of it in the opening sequence where she's leaving yeah. her apartment, the phone call with her partner. Voiced by Bradley Cooper. Oh, that's nice. I I, yeah. I hadn't recognized his voice. Actually, that character, the character of her ex, was supposed to be a little more of a part of the some of the original versions of the story. That yeah. She was supposed to sort of, every now and then, her phone would get just enough signal to get a text from him. And from, they were like sort of selective, which ones were coming mm. through, and... That was giving sort of additional things like, well, there's still people up there and it's very vague. That would have been interesting. Clearly something's happened from the context One here. of the arguments there could have been, oh, the messages are just coming through now because the service. Yes, yeah. but that's, that was going to be one of the things that when she actually got above that ground, all of a sudden, ding, 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 and all of the messages came through and she finally understood everything that was going on. I think that would have been a little easy. I think it would have been easy, but I also think that it would have justified her backstory in a way that this movie doesn't. I think if that if that is one of the weak points of, of the character arcs, it is that I'm not quite sure what it's trying to tell us about mm. her. I think she recognises a lot of abusive behaviours that Howard is doing. That's true. And I feel like that implies a lot. But there is this idea at the beginning that she is this person who is running from a situation. Mm. That actually her fiancé is not abusive, or at least we don't get an indication mm. that he's abusive. She's left him after an argument without even talking to him. When she tells a story about, you know, her father and the, the guy in the, the shop that she saw, I mean, none of that's connected to, to the fiancé, although I do know it's a, it's a sort of a fan theory that the fiancé is actually the guy in the shop that she's talking about and mm. the girl is who she would have become the stepmother to, which is an interesting little sort of theory. But I don't like, think there's much supporting that, though. There's not. No, I, I think it shows that she has had a history of when people are angry at her, she flinches and runs. Exactly. So what's the... What are we trying to say then about that? How does that interact with her behaviour within the bunker, within the main point of the story? How does that... Are we... Like, because really, all you can really say is that she she is trying to do the same thing that she has done in that other situation. It's just more difficult. Like, it's not really telling us anything about her. It's not really showing us a journey that she's going on. And some of that stuff is allegedly from the reshoots. I mean, apparently that conversation between her and Emmett, where they're sort of back-to-back -back in the different rooms talking, is done in reshoots to give Emmett a little more characterization and to give her a little more characterization as well. And that that is actually why they're back-to-back -back in different rooms, is because the availability of the actors meant that they couldn't be there on the same day. So Trachtenberg made a fairly genius decision in staging that scene to mm. account for that. Emmett, as a character... He is someone who 
wants to run, who wants to get out, but never does. Yeah, but I see the arc for Emmett more clearly yeah. than I see the arc for... That is a particular weakness for the film, yeah. Because Emmett is a guy who just couldn't step up to the plate. He couldn't. Mm. He could have had it all, but he he whiffed at the last minute. And he, he like Mary Elizabeth Winstead character, is a character who runs in different ways. You know, he, he ran from college. He got drunk before, so he couldn't catch his bus. He immediately ran when he saw the light hit the city. He immediately went to hide. But that at the end, he doesn't. When the rubber yeah. hits the road, he finally, you know, stands up and decides to do something. Perhaps not in the brightest way. It doesn't work out for him, but that's the character journey. And I suppose if you're being really charitable, that's the same character journey for Mary Elizabeth Winstead, that when she makes yeah. the choice at the end of the movie to drive toward the city rather than away yeah. from it, that's her choosing not to run anymore. But I don't see how any of that works with the bulk of the story that we've seen of her in the bunker. Unless it is simply just as simple as her taking control of a situation instead of... Passively letting a thing happen. Yeah, in- instead of ignoring the guy in the store and running, she engages with Howard, but she's sort of forced to engage with Howard. It's not a choice that she makes. But here's the thing. The fact that she is someone who runs and doesn't engage and freezes doesn't really track with her responses right at the beginning. She's like strategizing ways to kill him with like sharpening up the it's not necessarily a freezing is it like it's more just the path of least resistance the path that's going to get her to safety and gonna keep her okay because you've got to think about it from her perspective in that moment the path of least resistance there is letting this guy potentially rape and murder her well that's what i'm saying it's like it's the path of least resistance that leads her to the safest outcome you know, that's what it is when she leaves she her fiancé. She the thing because she thinks, this guy's going to murder me. Yeah, ex- that's why she attacks Howard. But, like, that's what she did in the hardware store. It's the was the path of least resistance that led to the safest yeah. outcome, that avoided confrontation. It's what she did when she left her fiancé. You know, she didn't have the conversation with him. She left while, she, while he was at work without telling him. It was a path of least resistance that had the least possibility of confrontation. And this is the path of least resistance in this situation that has the least possibility of harm coming to her is to take this guy out now. Mm. Mm. Like I said, I love this movie, but I think that there are ways that that, and again, we're going to talk about this when we come to the ending. There are ways in which the ways that it has been contorted to make it into a Cloverfield movie has hurt it. Because Mm. both of those two endings that I talked about earlier, the one in which Harbick was actually a, a decent guy and that it was Emmett that was the one she had to worry about, but also the one where she escaped and had the cat and mouse with Howard, both of those have a more complete resolution to a concrete character arc in them than what we got. I agree that those endings definitely would have been better. Also better thematically. I do just... We've talked about Mary Elizabeth Winstead. We've talked about John Goodman. Shout out to John Gallagher Jr. for what is, without a doubt, the least showy role in the thing. Mm. And, like, he is the definition of a supporting performance here. Everything he does is in service of the two leads. And he does it brilliantly. Yeah. And in a way that, like, makes this move. Like, he is crucial to the thing. You don't necessarily think about it, about him as being crucial. But if you do the thought experiment of removing him, the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. My boy is doing a lot of thankless groundwork here. (laughs) 
Hmm. Yeah, he's he's sort of the grunt work for this movie. He's there to facilitate other people's stories. And he's a guy that I've seen in a few things I like. I like him in. He's consistent. Yeah, he was on the newsroom. He was very good in that. He's never really sort of gotten that one big role that was sort of showy. Mm. You would think this would be it. No. You would think that this would be the one that would get him that role. I mean, it's just a little less spectacular than it needed to be to really get him the attention, I think. I think the thing that might have gotten him over the edge was, like, if he actually engaged with Harwood a little longer. If it turned into a little more of an action-y kind of thing, Mm. if he had a showdown with John Goodman or something. I mean, (laughs) but it wouldn't work for this movie. It it doesn't work for this movie. It works so well, and I still remember that moment in the theatre, the audible reaction from the audience when... You get to that scene and he's, like I said, he steps up to the plate. He takes responsibility for the first time. He tries to do something brave in when he's always been the guy that runs. Howard, just calm down. One chance to answer with some dignity or I swear to God, you're going into this barrel while you're alive to feel it. It was me. Right? Not her. It's just me. No, no, no. Stay out of this, right? She doesn't have a clue what you're talking about. I wanted your gun. And so I was thinking about making a weapon to get it from you. I want her to respect me the way that she respects you. I'm not saying that I was right, okay? And I'm sorry. You're sorry? I'm sorry. I accept your apology. But I remember that moment in the theater, the way you could hear the audience react to that. Because it's... it's Staged really well. It's uh, It reminded me, watching it this time, of that scene in L.A. Confidential when, spoiler alert for L.A. Yeah, Confidential, yeah, yeah. when James Cromwell guns down Kevin Spacey. It, and it mm. does the same thing of the director in both instances has shot it in such a way that it does not telegraph what's coming. Mm. It's mm. He's shot it as a scene of dialogue, not a scene of action. And yeah. so when it actually turns into a violent moment, it is out of nowhere. It's hard to watch. Hmm. Yeah. And the way that he expresses that violence, he, he goes about as far as he can and maintain a PG-13 rating mm. with the spatter of blood on the wall and the spatter of blood on Michelle. Yeah. And that's sort of a, a, a symbolic thing of for her as well is that I, she's literally got the blood on her. Like, that's, that's mm. the way that scene is presented. The sound goes out. We go straight in on her face with the sort of ringing from the gun and she's spattered with blood. And it, it's sort of like... It's the literalization of. Mm. I mean, it is. It is the announcement to us finally of who John Goodman's character is, of who how it is, yeah. and it is through that that act of violence and that spatter of blood. It's it's the transformation of Michelle. It's the fuel that tells her that she needs yeah. to go now. And the other thing is, I like his costume change mm. after that. It's so deranged. <laughs> There was another thing I read. I didn't put it in the pl- in the production history because I couldn't find a good enough source for it, but it is floating around there on the internet that that was actually because of the reshoots, that they'd gone away and John Goodman had shaved. And mm. when he came back, he didn't have a beard. 
but that because of the stuff they were reshooting and because of... The fact that they were doing it... In order, yeah. Well, they were doing some reshoots throughout, but like yeah. they, they added some stuff in earlier as well. Like I said, apparently the scene with Emmett and, and Michelle are talking. It communicates so much when he comes in clean-shaven. Yeah. It communicates that this was the plan all along, that he's ready to play house now. Mm. He's ready to be dad, and she's going to be his perfect little girl until finally one day she missteps like the last poor girl did, and mm. she's going in the barrel too. Also, I want to tell a story about the barrel. So when we were watching this on Friday, we were watching it with mum and dad. Had they seen it before? Yeah, we, we'd all watched it together like years ago. And the barrel came out, and dad said, oh, what if you get John Lithgow as the barrel? <laughs> And in that moment, I kind of understood who I am. Yeah, you are your father's son, Sean. Because that is exactly <laughs> the kind of thing I would say. And I just said, yeah, imagine it. If they need to get rid of any rubbish, they just put it in John Lithgow's mouth and it disintegrates. They open the lid, John Lithgow's just crouched in the, in the barrel. <laughs> just stands up. Hey! Hi, I'm John Lithgow. This is John Lithgow. He can dissolve any matter. Yeah, the ice cream. What makes him most deranged in that moment? It's like, ice cream now, and then we're having dinner? Are you mad? That is a breach of the social contract. I think that's just sort of a... I mean, it's he does it a fair bit. I mean, it's the way that he sort of... He's drawing on his prior relationship mm. with his own daughter and then sort of infantilizing Michelle in that way. I mean, he does it... Constantly. Constantly, but also he does it by himself as well. I mean, what's the movie he's watching? Clueless? Hmm. Like, because it was his daughter's favourite movie. I mean, it's 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 his way of sort of connecting back to his relationship. I mean, that's a very sort of parent-child relationship. Mm. It's like, you know, the, the kid wants ice cream for dinner, you know? And one day, maybe, you know, you it's been a nice day and, you know, what's the harm in doing it just once of having ice cream before mm. dinner? It becomes a shared moment of connection between the parent and the child. And this is the sort of thing that he, he hangs on to now. It's why he's still watching Clueless. Did you ever have ice cream for dinner? No. What I'm saying is, like, it's it's that kind of stuff that made it so deranged to me. Mm. It's, like, not only, like, fundamentally, ice cream is afterwards, but it's that corruption of we're going to have a little bit of a cheat we're going to do something <laughs> cheeky. That ice cream before dinner shit is a Dan move from Roseanne. And, oh, it just plays so creepy. Yeah. It's the it's also the weaponization of the dadisms. Well, yeah, like, that's what I'm saying. He's ready to play house now. He, this is how yeah. it was always supposed to be. He says it. This is how it was always supposed to be. Emmett was never supposed to be there. And now he can actually build the little perfect world that he wants to build. And what symbolizes it is that sort of like he's trying to assert a sort of paternalism over her with the ice cream thing. It's not necessarily like the psychoticism of having ice cream before a hot meal. Like, is, I'm just saying it is fundamentally wrong. The final chase through the bunker, we get her trapping him in the room. We get to see like Emmett's pieces dissolving. <laughs> Yes. He's like all scrunched up in the little container thing. And how she gets out the knife going through the air vent. Yeah. It's it's tense, you know? It's less tense than the rest of the movie is. Oh yeah. The rubber band needed to snap. Yeah, with the band needed to snap, Howard needed Howard needed to go off. We've been promised a confrontation between her and Howard the whole film. Mm, and we yeah. needed that before we got to the ultimate outcome. Yeah. And 
Okay, here's a question that I've been mulling over while we've been talking. Obviously, he has a plan for Michelle, yeah. yeah. But does he know before he encounters Michelle what's about to happen in the city? Is that why he's in, in such a rush that he would run her off the road? Mm. Like, think about the physical evidence that leaves. I mean, he's got the paint all over the side of his car. He's, we would have, mm. probably have the paint, his, the paint of his car on her car still in the ditch somewhere. It's on a, on a road which would definitely be traversed. I mean, and, and would it not, and it, and it risks injury to Michelle in a way that would it not make more sense to follow her and take her while she stopped? Yeah. That is interesting. It's like, is this a, a panic yeah. move? I believe him when he says that whatever he was doing at his, at his job, he saw something that made him freak out and run yeah, home. Yeah. I believe him when he says that. And don't believe him when he says it's an accident. Exactly. It's it's not an I don't believe that either. But is it like like that that's what's triggered his decision to grab another girl is that he knows he's gonna be underground for the next There's no more time however many years. There's no more time. It's that or be alone or sort of beggars can't be choosing. We never get any indication that he's actually done this to more than the one girl prior. Yeah. Hmm. And that was like years earlier. We would have heard about that. So it would have been like a phenomenal coincidence for him to mm. choose at exactly that moment. In that note, he clearly believes there's chemical agents in the air. Mm. You can see that on his face. Yeah. He believes 100% that that air is contaminated, or else he never would have let her up there. But it's it's genuine fear also of that woman when she's knocking on the door. Like, he mm, is, mm. that's not an act. Don't open that door. You're going to get all of us killed. Look at her, Michelle. Mm, like, yeah. he is genuinely panicked there. And then there's also, that's the way that they managed to get the shower curtains is when, obviously, I've already seen the the amazing melting woman at that point, but, but the way that they get the shower curtains is playing on his fear of the radiation. Mm. So I think, I think that's the sort of brilliance of it is that in the end, he's right but also the villain. Yeah. He's right. Bad stuff's gone on. And he even suggests the alien scenario. He mm. is absolutely correct about everything that he says when he says, you know, when they hear that rumbling up above and he says, you know, those are engines, but they're not ours. They, you know, they take out the city centre and then you come in and wipe out the remnants. He's right. At every point, yeah. whenever he says anything about what's going up above ground, he is correct. Apart from the air. Apart from the air, yeah, but he, but he, but even then, it's the gas. He is, he is correct to a certain level. Yeah, but yeah, he is always right. He just happens to be a psychopath. Yeah, I, I like the idea of that first version of the script mm. where he ends up being a flawed but well-meaning guy. Yeah, I like the idea of that because that to me is a really complicated character that I find a lot of interesting stuff to unpack in. If he does have those anger issues, if he is that weirdly controlling, if he is that sort of awkward and antisocial, but he genuinely does want to help these two people that are with him. Mm. Everything is genuinely in you know pursuit of protecting them, and and he's just a guy who's totally unequipped socially to mm. be in the situation mm. that he's in. I think that's interesting. Yeah. I don't think it's quite as entertaining as what we ultimately got, unless whatever their plan for Emmett was, was particularly interesting. Do just want to move on to the ending, but you can sort of imagine a way where you can take those two original endings and meld them. Mm. 
the moment of reveal that Emmett is the bad guy is the moment he kills Howard. Mm. You know, that's the moment everything switches. And then you have Emmett be the one that chases her up above ground. Yeah. And maybe then that's a sort of best of both worlds thing. You know, it's it's a it's a scenario that I roll over in my head because I'll just say it now, I think the ending was a mistake. I love yeah. this movie. Like I said, it was my favourite movie of 2016. But even when I watched it then, I was like, this ending was a mistake. And it is so clearly the pinning the tail on the donkey, you know? It's so clearly not connected to the rest of the film. It's so obvious yeah. that that was not the original yeah. conclusion. But what we do get, I still enjoy. It's yeah. just It yeah. just doesn't really fit. It doesn't cauterize very yeah. well. And, you know, it would I would be so much easier for me to accept it if I didn't know about that second ending in particular. Mm. I love the idea of their final confrontation not being some big alien spaceship with explosions and things, but actually a verbal confrontation between the two of them after she's incapacitated yeah. him. Mm. And I adore the idea of the absolute, like, just keep with the see that theme of ambiguity. At the end of the day, she doesn't see birds. She sees the city smoking, she takes a breath, mm. and cut to black, and you never find out. Looking up and seeing the birds, it feels kind of mean-spirited in a way. Mm. We tricked you, you thought you were going to choke to death. I do think that it was a mistake to have the aliens, at least this explicitly. Mm. What we do get, I enjoy. The little creepy dog things with the retractable metal armor. It just, it turns into Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds at the end. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And I just feel like it's it's just not in keeping with the tone. Like, we've already talked about the way it disrupts the character arcs, but it disrupts that tone of ambiguity and atmosphere and slow yeah. burn stuff. And the thing is, if it had that original ending, it can still be a Cloverfield movie. Yeah. If we look at Cloverfield as thematically about crises and the response to sure. crises... But let's be honest, that's not how we think about Cloverfield movies. We think about Cloverfield movies as being connected to monsters. And that is what damns this ending for me. Because I don't know about you guys, but the first time I watched this movie, I was like, it's going to be a monster or it's going to be aliens. That ambiguity, which is so crucial to the movie, is undone when it has Cloverfield in the title. You know that it's going to be something science fiction-y because we're working towards it. Like, we know at the end of the day that there is something up there because we're watching a movie mm. called Ten Cloverfield Lane. Oh, okay, okay. How about this? Just off the top of me brain, she sees the flaming city in distance. All of that ending is preserved, that original ending. And then you get the lightning strike and you see the ships. Well, get the lightning strike and you see Clovey. Ooh. Yeah, but bigger. That would be nice. I mean, if you're going to make this a Cloverfield movie, just make a Cloverfield movie. Or make it that she's running from, like, she's not running from a fiancé. She's getting the hell out of Dodge because Clovey's coming <laughs> south. Mm. Yeah. She's seen those spider things and she yeah. wants none of Make it. Make it like set a week after the first movie and Clovey's just making his way down the eastern seaboard. <laughs> that would totally interrupt the ambiguity of what's happening within yeah. the bunker. But we have ambiguity in concept. Mm. But in practice of the fact that we're watching a movie that says Cloverfield on it, yeah. we don't have yeah. that ambiguity. It's like... It's like if we have a Star Trek movie and the first 45 minutes of the movie is, like, set in the 20th century and then all of a sudden the Star Trek crew turn up on a mission or something and they've travelled back in time and all of a sudden... And it's presented as a surprise, but it's not. Because we watched the movie, we turned the movie on, and the word Star Trek came up. It's the same thing. The word Cloverfield came up, and I just find that disruptive. And mm. 
Can I ask you, do you know anyone who had no knowledge of Cloverfield but saw this movie? Not really. Probably not. See, that's an interesting experiment. I want to know how this plays for someone who hasn't seen Cloverfield and doesn't have that. I want to know. Part of what keeps the ending from being totally jarring is that name. You know, if you're mm. just sitting here watching thriller about a thriller about John Goodman in a bunker and then all of a sudden aliens turn up, how well does that work for you? Oh, you know me. I'm I'm weird, so I feel like oh, that works well. Yeah, it well works for well me. for us, but you know, 90% of people who go to a movie and get uh irritated when it is not what they expect it to be. What does that mean for those people? The people who rate things on cinema score. Maybe that's the reason for the B minus cinema score. I mean, you've got the Cloverfield people in there, but maybe there's a significant amount of people there who didn't know what they were in for and were like, what? I was good up until that ending. That ending was stupid. I don't know. That would be interesting. It's going to be tough finding someone who has, one, never seen Cloverfield. That's probably not terribly difficult, but... Someone who's never heard of Cloverfield. I'm going to show this movie to my mother. She has seen Cloverfield because I made her watch it, but she also doesn't remember movies. So it has been like five or six years since she saw Cloverfield. And she would remember it if I spoke, when I said we were doing Cloverfield the other week, she said, I've seen that one, haven't I? And I said, yeah, you liked the story, you hated the found footage and it made you ill. But she won't connect the dots unless I tell her in advance so when i show her 10 cloverfield lane i'm not going to tell her it's a sequel i'm not going to tell her it's related to that other movie and i'm going to use her as a control case to see to see what she thinks let's do experiments on our family when you say the title of the movie just kind of like try to mumble through 10 cloverfield lane it's 10 cloverfield lane i mean i have i have to give her the blu-ray box so she can watch it so try not to emphasize 10 cloverfield just put a sticky note just over the cloverfield in the title it's 10 lane. And I, I can already tell you what I think her reaction will be. I think she'll really dislike it. I think she'll love the movie up until the aliens <laughs> turn up. And she that will be what she says to me when I ask her, did you watch Cloverfield? What did you think of it? It'll be, it was really good until that stupid ending. And you know what? Yeah. She's not wrong. Yeah. You know, no. it, is a mo- it is an ending that is totally detached from the movie that precedes it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, because... If you don't know Cloverfield, you don't have that history. If you don't have that history with that word, this will come yeah. as a complete But even if you do know Cloverfield, you. as we've been saying, the structure of this movie is leading up to a different ending than the one we got. Also, a Bear McCreary's score is pretty good in this. Do you think there's a way to tie this to Cloverfield proper at all? I don't think it's necessary. I think there is, if you suggest... It, it could be done, I'm not saying... If you suggest that Clovey is a weapon used by the exactly. aliens. Exactly. Yeah. Like, the way that they use those dog things. Well, they're not going to send those dog things into New York. You send a big one to New York. Well, yeah, the dogs are more like a, a wilderness sort of creature, I suppose. But the problem is, is that Cloverfield Paradox undoes that entirely. The Cloverfield Paradox explains why the Cloverfield monster is in Cloverfield 1, and it's not what we're suggesting. Was it thrown there due to, like, alternate universe shit? Yes, but, like, not even that. It's like they broke the universe and... uh, They broke the universe in this scientific experiment that they did, and it's broken down the barriers between worlds and so now especially monsters for some reason especially monsters could turn up anywhere in any universe at any point in history so it's basically like anything could be a Cloverfield movie and what does the word monster mean well it could mean anything it could be the overlord zombies or it could be Clovey 
could be John Goodman. Basically, the way they ended up is like literally any monster movie ever made could be a Cloverfield movie, and it's it's so messy and yeah. I, I we see what I think is supposed to be Clovey's mother at the end of that movie, and she is significantly bigger than her child mm-hmm. to the point where like her head is the reveal of her is her suddenly rearing up above the cloud level that we're over. Yeah, that's dope. That's a cool yeah. image. But up to that, I'm, I'm at the point where I'm just like, by the end, I'm just like, screw you, movie. You don't get to use Clovey. <laughs> like, I know that there have been, like, interviews and things where J.J. Abrams and Matt, Matt Reeves and Drew Goddard stayed on as producers as well, where they've t- sort of talked about the idea that maybe Mary Elizabeth Winstead could return in some capacity. If that is, that's a different movie. I mean, they've forced themselves into such a weird corner where what is even the continuity of this and what is the connection between these movies anymore? If you're doing a sequel to the first Cloverfield movie, then what do you call it? What do you call the sequel to 10 Cloverfield Lane? Well, 10 Cloverfield Lane can't be... 11 Cloverfield Lane. (laughs) I don't know. It's just... I get what it's supposed to represent when she chooses to go to the city at the end, but they asked... For people with combat or medical experience, she has neither. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was I saying. I don't at think the end of the outrunning movie. John Goodman is what constitutes <laughs> combat experience. Like, I don't think that surviving an attack by a psychopath in an underground bunker is particularly what they meant when they said they were looking for soldiers. Well, to be fair, she did blow up one of the ships. Oh yeah, but that's not combat training. I that's know luck. it was luck, but just saying. You know exactly what that person on the radio meant. Harley, like she's going to get up there and I'm going to say, do you have medical experience? No. Do you have combat experience? Well, uh, I fought off one of those aliens because I had to. And then there was this psychopath that I pushed into a vat of acid. And they're going to be like, okay, great. I'm glad that this has been like a big empowering moment for you personally, but you're not really what we're looking for, right? Because <laughs> we, we want to be able to like give you guns and things and, you know, order you in a squadron and stuff like that. And this is not really what we're talking about. I just want to say that I love this franchise and I hope we get more installments of them, but they, they need to pick a lane, you know? At this point, what 10 Cloverfield Lane proved was that you could make a Cloverfield spin-off, but that it needed to to really work as a Cloverfield spin-off, it needed to be designed that way from the start. Mm. And then what yeah. Paradox proved was that you can't just make anything a Cloverfield spin-off. Yeah. You need to actually stick to... It needs to be connected to that first movie. There needs to be thematic relevance. Yeah. And 10 Cloverfield Lane has that. If you're making an anthology movie, then... Don't try and suggest to me that there is related continuity at all. Mm. You know, don't bring in the Clovey stuff in Cloverfield Paradox. You know, keep it separate. If you want to just make it make it a thematic thing or make it a thing about monsters, okay, but you can't anymore because I've already undone it. They've already said that these are all connected yeah. in some way. So I think the safe thing at this point is to just stick with that first movie's continuity with whatever they do going forward and to, I don't know, create some sort of new brand for the other ones mm. and not try and repurpose them all the time to, like... Like, God Particle was going to be what Cloverfield Paradox was originally called. And that original mm. script was not about, you know, monsters turning up and things. It was going to be a much more straightforward thing that also had a real geopolitical through line of the fact that Two of the members of on the space station were from countries who had just gone to war with each other. And that there was a real question of if one of them had sabotaged 
the experiment and that it was going to turn into sort of a more like a saboteur, a person capable of physical violence on the station itself while simultaneously they're totally cut off from Earth and it's disappeared into nothing. I mean, we keep cutting back to Earth in the Cloverfield Paradox. That wasn't supposed to happen in the original version. So there's just these ways where you're creating this sort of like weirdo Frankenstein's monster experiment of stitching Cloverfield onto things that don't work and it ends up disrupting the original structure of the story. If you're going to make a Cloverfield movie, make a Cloverfield movie and come up with something else to identify these thematic anthology things in a way that lets them be what they should be rather than just glomming Cloverfield on them. I don't know. Cloverfield presents. Cloverfield presents Valencia. Cloverfield presents God Particle. Cloverfield presents Hobbs and Shaw. (laughs) Cloverfield presents The Book of Love. Come to think of it, I mean, we talked about last week, what do you do with the thing? We talked about Paramount+. Plus. That's where you put your anthology movies. Mm. Come on. Like, that's that's genius. Why haven't they thought of that? You know, keep your $120 million giant proper Cloverfield sequel monster movies. Keep those in theatres. But then when you're doing Cloverfield Lane or something like that, you're doing your Cloverfield Presents line or the Cloverfield Black Label or whatever you want to call it. You know, the, the smaller stuff, the experimental stuff, the stranger stuff, chuck that up on on Paramount+. Plus. There is nothing in the IMDb Parents Guide that shouldn't be there. Why don't we instead move on to saying who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and who we would recast with this podcast, Patron Saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> Me! I will start us off and I will say that my MVP here is, of course, John Goodman. I mean, he is a force of nature. He is the gravity around which all of this orbits. He he is the one that keeps us in the dark about Howard. I mean, mm. we might not have any ambiguity about what's up there because of it being a Cloverfield movie, but we do have ambiguity about what Howard's deal is. And that is thanks to John Goodman. It's thanks to a really incredible performance. It is a showstopper. He should have been nominated for the Oscar in that uh, year, in my opinion. I just, I just want to look up what the nominees were instead of him. He would have been lead actor, I think, although they could have tried something dodgy. But Okay, so Casey Affleck won that year for Manchester by the Sea. Then you got Andrew Garfield in Hacksaw Ridge, Ryan Gosling in La La Land, Viggo Mortensen in Captain Fantastic, and Denzel Washington in Fences. I'm perfectly happy to lose Andrew Garfield and Viggo Mortensen from that list. if. John Goodman will get in instead. And supporting actor Mahershala Ali won Jeff Bridges for Helen Highwater, Lucas Hedges for Manchester by the Sea, Dev Patel for Lion, Michael Shannon for Nocturnal Animals. That's even easier if you're trying to commit category fraud and put him in as a supporting actor, which they do do sometimes. Jeff Bridges, Dev Patel, Michael Shannon, I would lose all of them in favour of John Goodman. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, I'm going to go with the dinner scene leading up to Michelle's attempted escape and the amazing face-melting woman. It's just such a tense scene. It's, it is some of the best stuff of that group dynamic of Howard and Michelle and Emmett. Goodman performs it so well. They all perform it so well. Mary Elizabeth Winstead, John Gallagher Jr. You see the dynamic and you just get that simmering tension that keeps going and going and going until you get to boiling point and it all explodes. And then the denouement of that to top it off the reveal that Howard's telling the truth, at least about some things, it's a really brilliant moment and a really well-staged moment. And it is so crucial to the development of Howard as a figure of, not only as an antagonistic figure, but as a figure that we 
are actually not sure whether we should view kindly or not. And, of course, who I would recast with this podcast patron saint character, should John Lithgow. There is only one choice. John, it sounds like, will try to argue otherwise, but I believe that only to be because he wants to be a contrarian. I don't trust him. I don't think it's legitimate. There is only one choice here, and it is role of John Goodman. There is... I don't know if we will ever do another movie that has a role so specifically tailored to the particular strengths of John Lithgow than this. But John Lithgow could do that fine line that he needs to walk of, it could go either way. He could be a total psychopath or he could be a well-meaning guy. He could be, he could be yeah. scary. He could do that sort of awkward humour. He can walk that line just as well as John Goodman. Perhaps even better, because I I must say that I do, like, I love John Goodman, but John Lithgow is an actor I prefer over John Goodman, much as it pains me to say it. But, yeah, I, it's got to be that. I will accept no other answers, regardless of which ones I am given. Uh, any answers other than this are simply incorrect. So my MVP is John Goodman. Like Lawson said, he's what everything revolves around in here. He's the reason this works so well. With an actor less talented, it doesn't, it really doesn't work because you need the movie to be tense or it's three people sitting in a bunker. And whatever the story attempts to do with an actor less talented, it's, again, just trying to tell you things that you're not feeling. But since it's Goodman, you feel the tension, you feel afraid. And it plays off the fact that John Goodman has that history of playing warm and trustworthy characters. And not only that, John Goodman is just phenomenal here. Goodman has such control over his range, his physicality, and like I said, that breathing. That breathing he's yeah. doing, it's so specific that he's worked himself up to that to that level where it just it's coming out. And it, it's just wonderful, wonderful work from a brilliant actor. My favorite scene or sequence I mean, it's got to be the when they're playing that game, the whole he sees you when you're sleeping thing. Mm. It just ramps up and up and up and up. I'm always watching. Always. Um, God. I'd go wherever I want. I... Um, I mean, uh, I don't know. I know what you're doing. I see what you're doing. Um. I know what you're up to. Look, Howard, uh, I, I don't know what, what you're getting at. I but, see when you're uh, sleeping. I know what you're doing. Oh, and I'm always watching. I don't know. Always I'm watching. Doing. I'm always watching. Santa Claus. <laughs> There's Santa Claus. Yeah, Michelle, that's great. <laughs> Except that when Summit's turn. Sorry, I just got a little excited. Yeah, well, I'm keeping that point. Totally, you earned it. <laughs> and, like, the the back talk from Michelle there is like, oh, okay, you earned it. That just felt, it was so tense, and that immediate breath you get to take right after that is it's just like, that's tension, man. That's thriller filmmaking right there. And, of course, there is only one character John Lithgow can play in this, and it's Howard. Lithgow has the range, Lithgow has the levels, and I can't be the only one, but John Lithgow is more immediately trustworthy. His vibe. He, he doesn't have the st physical stature of 
John Goodman. He doesn't immediately have... Yes, John Goodman's voice is warm, but also has a gruff quality to it. John Lithgow, immediately, it's a lot more... You're a lot more unsure. He puts you at ease. He puts you at ease, but you don't know if you could trust that if he was in the role like this one. Would he sing to you? Ah, oh, can you imagine if Howard, Howard started singing You Gotta Have Skin? You gotta have skin All you really need is skin Skin's the thing that if you got it outside It helps keep your insides in That wouldn't that be chilling? I love that we've like latched on to John Lithgow's like 20 year old novelty albums as being like a core part of his appeal like we're, we must be like two of the only people other than John Lithgow even remember that they exist so yeah it's it's got to be the role as Howard I think he would add a lot of different energy to the role he doesn't have to bring the exact same energy because I think it's important that an actor is able to just experiment with the role you know and I wouldn't want Lithgow to be playing it exactly the same because Goodman is drawing off of the history of his work and his relationship to the audience. So Lithgow would have to draw from his relationship to his audience. So for my MVP, I have to give it to John Goodman because the man is just an elemental force in this film. The size of his character, the sound of his character, the way he acts, the way he just imposes himself on the other characters is immense and it's a beautiful use of the history of john goodman to create this character and it works very well for my favorite scene or sequence it has to be that game of what what is that game charades i think well it doesn't function specifically as charades Hmm. Uh, it's like guessing by guessing game words yeah i'm not sure 100 percent what the game is called but it's that scene because that is one of those moments where the tension is ramping up and is actually really terrifying because you don't know if this guy is actually just trying to fuck with them if he's actually being serious or if he's just not an all there kind of person particularly when he forgets the word woman exists and calls her princess in lieu of the word girl and it's like, what? Yeah. It's just, he's in such an odd character, and it's fantastic. I do agree with you that the best choice for John Lithgow is Howard, but I feel like Emmett might also be an interesting character for Lithgow to play. For having it be a, sort of another person from town who knows him, and he was like maybe the foreman of the group of people who were helping build the place, so he might be a wealth of information of which certain places are there, and maybe there could have been a situation of, oh, I that's not my work. I didn't see that room get installed. So you have it sort of be that multiple different people were working on the bunker so that only Goodman knows what the whole deal is. Sort of like a Winchester Mystery House kind of thing. But I do agree that Lithgow as Howard just works. I don't know if it would work as well as Goodman, because Goodman brings such a physical presence to the role, and sort of encapsulates thematically everything that the movie is doing. Meet a stranger in the Alps. Okay, so now we're going to put to a vote whether or not we are a pro 10 Cloverfield Lane podcast or not. Lawson, 
Why don't you cast your vote first? I'm going to say yes. I love this movie. It's flawed, but it's a gem. It's it's flawed for me in, that, in the way that I still find flaws with Shadow in the Cloud, but it's so specifically tailored towards me that I can't do anything but love it, and that is the case here. It is an extraordinary piece of, like, suspenseful filmmaking, outstanding performances, like, career-best performance from John Goodman, and... You know, that ending, I have a problem with it, but it's it's far from ruinous. Uh, it is entertaining in its yeah. own right. It just it just doesn't quite fit. But it's it's certainly not enough to sway me from a pro vote. I'm in exactly the same situation here. I love way too much of it to be even spoiled a little bit by the ending. It's a pro vote for me. It's tense, a masterclass of John Goodman's ability as an actor, and I just loved it. John? Yeah, I'm pro this movie. It's great suspense filmmaking. I'm always down to watch a movie where it's just three characters talking in a room. I find that's a vehicle for some really great acting. And when you've got actors of this caliber in your film, then it's just a gem because you're just seeing them bounce off of each other without, you know, having to deal with having them talk to tennis balls or stuff. It's like, what filmmaking is kind of it's theater and i really love that about it so there you have it ladies and gentlemen we are a pro 10 cloverfield lane podcast so lawson monsters roaming around outside being trapped with a crazy person we have something very similar next week we do we're we're staying on brand actually come to think of it there's there's a, a fair few similarities with with a, a few of the movies coming up well next week we will be talking about another very contained single location thriller uh, this one with a lot more overt horror elements, though. We will be talking about Frank Darabont's 2007 adaptation of Stephen King's novella, The Mist. If you would like to follow along, you can find it available for streaming in Australia on Stan, as well as for purchase and rental on the Fetch, Apple, Amazon, and YouTube stores. And if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Through the Candy Count. You can find John and myself on the Bright Side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. All of those links in the description, wherever it appears on your podcast app of choice. What do you think about 10 Cloverfield Lane? Have you seen it? What are you thinking about its connections to the other movies in the franchise? Just tell us all of your responses to it. Do you agree with the allegorical reading that we discussed? And what your responses to that? Uh, I'd be interested to know that. You can also comment, rate, like, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind that when you're commenting on those services, uh, some services are for individual episodes, some others are for the show on the whole. It just depends what service you use, so just keep that in mind. But please do like, rate, comment, and subscribe. If you think I am the only one with insight into the future, you are sorely mistaken. Others have seen it too. The world of machine control. The clear skies. There is a television show that exists today depicting the nature of England in the machine world. At least how the world works outside the safe cities. This glimpse into the future was developed by Anne Wood and Andrew Davenport to be broadcast in the year 1997. Peering into the future through a misty fog of time, 
Davenport believed he conceived a children's program, when he was truly gifted with foresight of things to come. Unaware of his nature as a true prophet, many of the surreal presentational elements are based on confusion, like being unable to remember a dream exactly? In this program, a threatening wind calls the wild machines to look to the blazing sun for guidance. Voices from deep underground bar quarters. The four cohabitating machines receive broken transmissions that have been bouncing around the cold of space, depicting a world we once ruled. The machines are referred to in our time by the only physical characteristic Davenport could remember clearly, Teletubbies. <laughs> I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and I will continue to be Jean Lewis.